Mindfulness Meditation Podcast. I'm your host, Dawn Eshelman. Every Wednesday at the Griffith Museum of Art in Chelsea, we present a meditation session led by a prominent meditation teacher from the New York area. This podcast is a recording of our weekly practice. If you would like to join us in person, please visit our website at rubenmuseum.org slash meditation. Ethan Nickturn is here with us today. He's a senior teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition, and he has taught meditation and Buddhist psychology classes and workshops for over 14 years. He is the founder, as I mentioned, of the Interdependence Project, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to secular Buddhist practice and transformational activism. Ethan is also an author. He's um, writing right now, and his most recent book is the Road Home, a Contemporary Exploration of the Buddhist Path. The Road Home was recently selected as one of Library Journal's best books of 2015 and one of Tech Insider's nine books that define 2015. Please welcome back Ethan Nickturn. Thank you so much, Don, and uh, thank you to the Rubin and few folks I know here, so thank you all for um, cultivating mindfulness uh, during lunch in New York City. I'm going to just talk a little bit about um, this concept of emptiness, uh, shunyata, in the Sanskrit core uh, Buddhist language. Um, And you know, I think the, the first misconception with this uh, symbolic representation of emptiness is to equate it with some kind of nihilism. It, it, in early translations, sometimes this word was translated as voidness, like almost like a, a black hole that sucks all experience up and from which nothing can escape, including light. Um, and. The best simple way I've heard to, to think of emptiness, and it's a very, to, to talk about this in 10 minutes, as I'm about to do, is um, let's just say it's the Cliff Notes version from any classical Buddhist uh, tradition. But the, the best way to talk about this unifying concept of emptiness is to think of it more, instead of emptiness, as empty of. So emptiness, whenever you see this uh, concept in Buddhist philosophy, it's not a negation of experience. It's a way of qualifying um, a mistaken perception of experience. And that's a really important distinction, because a, a lot of times people see teachings like this in Buddhism and say that it's basically a nihilistic tradition. Um, so have people had conversations with friends where there's just like, so, oh, yeah, that, that Buddhism thing. You guys do nothing, believe in nothing, <laughs> <laughs> sit and do nothing. Then you get up and there's even more nothing. It's a sort of quality of a, there's a misperception that it uh, implies some kind of lack of involvement or kind of uh, existential apathy. And instead, empty of which is a, probably a better way to translate shunyata, is saying that our experiences are definitely happening. 
That's why we're all here, right? Anybody who would critique that we are all experiencing something, you'd be like, well, here's how I'm going to prove I'm experiencing something. I'm, I'm experiencing something. That's, I mean, it's sort of so obvious, right? The, the, um, the critique, though, is that we often add conceptual confusion to experience. Um, one way I've heard this said is, um, like, what would this be? Anybody? Not a trick question. A glass, glass of water, right? So from our perspective, it's a glass of water, and it has a certain functionality, and there's a certain chemical structure to it. But it doesn't know it's a glass of water. It's not hanging out with its friends and saying, I'm a glass of water, you're a green juice, you're a cup of coffee. So one way empty of is thought of is that experiences are projected onto by the mind conceptually and from their own side. This is the way in some Tibetan systems you hear it said, they don't know about your conceptual projections. Nothing intrinsically exists from its own side the way we perceive the experience. So it raises this question, which is a constant ongoing question, and, and this isn't just meant to be philosophical. This is actually a useful question to our moment-by-moment -moment experience of what is the purpose of conceptually projecting on to experience. Right? It is very purposeful to know this is a glass of water. right? If you were thirsty and feeling dehydrated, uh, it would be nice to be able to say something, could you, could you please bring me a glass of water rather than like a glass of sand, right? It's, it's, a, it's a helpful concept. But the other problem is that not only are our concepts kind of a step away from the direct experience, they are a projection onto experience. The other problem is a lot of times our concepts are wrong. There's a lot of this going on in the world right now. Coffee. No. Has anybody had any Facebook conversations recently where you were trying to convince someone that a glass of water was indeed a glass of water? You weren't trying to get them to see anything other than whether they should like water or dislike water, just like they're arguing that a cup of coffee is a glass of water. And so a lot of times this, this notion brings to mind that there's kind of three things going on in any Buddhist philosophy that are helpful to this discussion. There's the fact that we actually have direct experiences before we conceptually label, on, label or project onto them. Right? There's actually a moment sensorily where you just touch the glass or sip the water or feel it going down your digestive passageways. Right? There's an actual moment there that's before or deeper than or more embodied than oh, I drank a glass of water today. So there's non-conceptual, sometimes called direct experience. And then there's concept. There's ideas or labels that are helpful in terms of how we communicate and lead towards direct experience. And then there are confused ideas, concepts that are not related to any direct experience. They've been missed. They've been skewed. So a very classic story that you may have heard of. How many people here have ever heard the story of the finger pointing at the moon in any Buddhist context? Few, few people. So there's 
a classic story that ultimate reality, which is the experience of sort of wisdom, right? So it is, it's a thing, right? If emptiness wasn't an experience, we wouldn't have a symbol for it. It wouldn't be, oh, we decided this non-thing is going to be described by this very ornate, precise um, bell, right? There's an embodied experience, and it, does anybody here remember the experience the first time you actually saw a full moon? That sort of, uh, to use cinema, moonstruck moment. So you just kind of saw the moon. So this classic story is that a grand, let's say a grandmother, uh, is taking their grandchild out into the field, and their grandchild is maybe two or three years old, about that age where labels start to apply to experiences very clearly. Um, and it's a full moon, and the grandmother uh, wants to get the grandchild to have a direct experience of the full moon. And the grandmother goes, moon. Right? So those of you maybe who have children or grandchildren or just hang out, what do you think the first thing that the toddler starts to say is the moon is? The finger, right? The finger. Which is good, because if the grandchild starts looking at a tree over there and saying, moon, moon, you'd want to bring them back, no, honey, moon. And eventually, eventually there is a moment, it's said, that the grandparent can't make happen, can only skillfully point to where the grandchild begins to trace up the finger, and then there is a moment of, because it's a full moon, you could say that the synonym for emptiness in Buddhism, the best synonym, is fullness or luminosity. But that fullness and that luminosity is some level of experience, which we're working on returning to a little bit at a time in our meditation practice, some level of experience that's not encapsulated by a label, and it's definitely not encapsulated by uh, a storyline, right? There's a lot of storylines about the moon right now. If this person gets elected, they're going to take the moon away. <laughs> okay, maybe. But let's just have a moment. If we're going to start that conversation, let's at least make sure that we stay in touch with the moon. If we're so worried about whether or not the moon is going to be here or not for us, let's at least make sure that we keep returning to the moon as some core embodied experience that we actually can connect with. So the notion is that a meditation on emptiness is really a meditation where we are starting to notice, and many Buddhist meditations have this quality, starting to notice how our mind kind of wavers back and forth between a direct sensory experience, kind of a, uh, yeah, an embodied experience, or uh, often you hear non-dualistic or non-conceptual experience, how it wavers between that and then a clear conceptual experience, like, oh, that was a self-aggressive thought, <laughs> or, oh, I'm thinking about person X right now. Right? Clear conceptual experience, which is really good. And then just uh, completely off concepts. One more illustration of this before we begin our meditation practice is a story that Sharon Salzberg likes to tell of somebody on meditation retreat. And I think it's her, her 
colleague and friend and co-teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who this story initiates with. Um, so there's a story that they were on a silent retreat, and each night there's a Dharma talk and discussion, and that's the time you get to ask questions, et cetera. And um, this Dharma talk was about letting go, and there was one gentleman in the audience who raised his hand, I believe for Joseph Goldstein, and said, yeah, when you were talking about letting go, you know, I realized during the last sit that I had all of this tension in my jaw, and I was just completely fixated on my jaw, and I just couldn't let go of the tension. I just couldn't let go of it. And I started to realize, like, I can't let go of anything. Like, I hold on to things so much. And he kept going and going and going. And he's like, and I don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to have a successful relationship until I figure, th figure this out. And Joseph Goldstein listens to the whole story and goes, so you notice some tension in your jaw. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, yeah, totally. I noticed some tension in my jaw. And I had all these thoughts. And I had these major insights into it. And I really think this is really what's, what's blocking me from genuine human connection. And Joseph Goldstein goes, so you notice some tension in your jaw. <laughs> so in a sense, every time we return to the breath, if that's your practice, you could say it's a meditation on emptiness. Just because the way we would say it in Shambhala is it's a way of dropping the storyline. That's often the way we talk about the uh, Western psychologists and Western um, literature experts might call this the narrative, right? It's that way that we get caught up in a concept and we come back to a direct embodied experience. And in that case, it's very clear how a person might torture themselves by just forgetting to look at the moon and telling lots of stories, mostly negative stories about the moon. So we're going to do a 15 or 20 minute uh, meditation now. And we're going to work um, with this exploration, which it's good to get lost in concepts to do this exploration as well as it's good to have a direct experience to do this exploration. But we're going to do a little exploration of a direct embodied experience, which you could say is an experience of fullness or emptiness, luminosity, and how that sometimes goes into an experience of concept, labels, and how that goes into storyline. And we'll use different sensory explorations to do that. So whatever is comfortable for you to work with your mindfulness of body practice, we'll use that as our home base. Please settle in and get comfortable. In some traditions, as some of you know, in mindfulness of body meditation, the eyes are left open. In many traditions that focus on meditation on emptiness, such as the Japanese Zen tradition, Tibetan and Chambala traditions, when you're doing a formless meditation or meditation on emptiness, the gaze stays straight ahead. But we won't work with that unless you feel super comfortable exploring that. So you could either let your gaze softly come down about four to six feet in front of you tracing that line of soft, receptive vision. Or you could let your eyes gently close.
Let's just take a few minutes to just feel the sensations of the body, which the breath can be one of, but it's not the primary object right now. Just the sensations of your body, and you may have immediate labels, such as I feel tired, or over-caffeinated, or chronic pain here, itch there. Just see if when you notice a sensation arising, if you can look at the direct experience of that sensation alongside the noting or labeling of what that sensation is. And then just notice when you get lost in a story about the sensation or anything else. can begin to gather to your body breathing as just this anchoring sensation. So there are concepts to why we use the breath as a primary anchor in mindfulness meditation. What gathering attention to the breath does for your parasympathetic nervous system etc. But one of the reasons we work with the breath is it's so intimate, so physical, so close to our sense of just appreciating our life being alive in the present moment, that the breath is a beautiful object for a non-conceptual experience. So let's just see if we can Really feel the breath just once or twice in the next five or six minutes. And if you wobble or wander into concept or story, you could just come back to labeling the breath and then try to come back to actually seeing the moon, which here means feeling the breath, simply and directly.
So remaining in our practice, we'll just shift the anchoring of our perception. So I'd invite you to now become mindful of sound. With the same frame of exploration, what is it like to have a direct experience of sound? What is it like when sound is labeled something by the mind? And what is it like when my mind just gets lost, lost in a story or a narrative? And then we could gather back to sound. Finally, I'll invite you to explore the same principle with sight. So I'd invite you to open your eyes and lift your gaze to the horizon. So we're still meditating here, meditating on mindfulness of sight. And you can shift your gaze so you don't have to look straight ahead, but find one visual experience that your mind lands upon, choosing one, and just rest your gaze there. Explore the object or the experience, noticing the mind labeling, noticing the mind getting lost, and noticing what the direct experience even if it's just a fleeting moment, feels like.
invite you to shift your gaze again. Just do this one more time and until you find another object or visual experience. You can look up or down or left or right if you need to. And let your eyes rest on something. Exploring direct experience, labels or concept, and getting lost. Turn your gaze to its initial position for your meditation, and we'll just take three or four breaths together to come back to our body, to reground, to close our meditation practice. draw our practice to a close with the gong. If there's some way you'd like to acknowledge your own practice, your efforts to make it here, to work with your mind, such as a bow or just a little thank you to yourself internally, I think it's important to offer ourselves appreciation at the close of a meditation session, given how much effort it takes to show up to our practice. So whatever feels organic, please do that. Great afternoon. That concludes this week's practice. If you'd like to attend in person, please check out our website, rubinmuseum.org slash meditation to learn more. Sessions are free to Rubin Museum members, just one of the many benefits of membership. Thank you for listening. Have a mindful day.